Today from the Global Lane, Holocaust Remembrance Day and the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Never again? Primary season underway, 30 million African-American voters. Who will they choose for president? Biden, Bernie, Donald Trump? Another landmark trade deal sign, but is danger ahead? And God and man's silence, life lessons and genocide. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Holocaust survivors, most now in their 80s or 90s, gathered at the Auschwitz death camp, commemorating the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the camp. Now, those in attendance expressed concern over rising anti-Semitism and hatred in Europe and around the world. And joining us with more is Rabbi Ariel Berger. He's founding director and senior scholar at the Witness Institute, author of the new book, Witness, Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom. What would Elie Wiesel say about the young people today at Boston University, other campuses, that are either Holocaust deniers or know nothing about the Holocaust. What would he say to them? Well, you know, there was a survey just last week, the Pew survey showed that 50% of Americans couldn't explain how many Jews were killed in the Holocaust. And there are other surveys as well recently that show that millennials, 66% of millennials couldn't identify the word Auschwitz. So it's very disturbing. Elie Wiesel was deeply committed to memory and to transmitting memory, the sacred memory of the Holocaust. And he would be very concerned as we all are, that people are either forgetting or willfully forgetting what happened. And not just deniers, but bystanders, people who are standing off to the side, living in ignorance. And that's very, very disturbing, especially when we see a rise in anti-Semitism and the memory of the Holocaust is more important than ever. Now, in the book, he says, we must find what unites us but not allow the search to collapse the distinction between us. So at a time of rising incivility in the United States, what did he really mean about that? Well, restoring civil discourse and learning how to disagree well, whether it's uh, in the halls of power or at a Thanksgiving dinner table, is more and more important. But he was saying that we don't have to all believe the same thing or express the same beliefs or values or believe in the same expression of God in the world. We can have differences. We can respect one another and we can disagree about things and we can do it with deep respect and we can learn from one another. And he said a beautiful quote. He said, it is the otherness of the other which fascinates me. His favorite uh, book of the Bible was Job. And you discuss how he had mentioned arguing with God. Yeah. What did he mean about arguing with God? Should we argue with God? Well, you know that Elie Wiesel as a child was a very, very religious boy steeped in fervor. He said that he, he knew the streets of Jerusalem better than he knew the streets of his hometown. He studied mysticism. He prayed for the redemption of the world when the other kids were out playing ball. And he was filled with religious fervor. And then, of course, if you've read Night, you know that his faith was severely challenged, if not shattered, during the Holocaust in Auschwitz. And after the war, he tried to find a way to live a life of faith that was honest about the experience of the, what he called the kingdom of night, of Auschwitz and the darkness of the camps. And what he came to was what he called a wounded faith, where his expression of faith had a lot to do with arguing with God. And he would ask his questions. He would challenge God. He lived in a kind of quarrel, lover's quarrel with God for the rest of his life. And this, of course, is drawing on an old biblical Jewish tradition where Abraham argues with God mm -hmm. on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you notice, if you read the verses carefully, right before that, God kind of turns to the camera and says, will I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, that I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? There's an invitation from God to argue with God. 
on behalf of humanity. In the book, you mention Cambodia, you mention Bosnia, Rwanda, Darfur, mm -hmm. and I would even add more recently the genocide against Christians and Yazidis in the Middle East. Yes. Um, what do we do to prevent future holocausts, future genocides? Because it doesn't seem like we've been doing a very good job of it since the Holocaust. First of all, if Elie Wiesel were here, I believe he would be shouting about what's happening to Christians and Yazidis and others in the Middle East. Um, and we have to pick up that cry, that rallying cry. We can't remain silent when people are suffering anywhere in the world, whether it's overseas or in our own country. And he was disturbed by this question for, for his whole life. He felt that it's impossible after Auschwitz that there could be another genocide. He told us in class once, I, we believed, our, the survivors believed that Auschwitz was the last one. How could there be another one? How could the world not learn the lesson? And yet we see that the world has not learned the lesson. So I believe and he believed that we have to go to the root of the question. It's not just about tactics and policies. It's about healing the human heart. It's about going very deeply into what makes us human. How do we learn to live together and respect and more than respect, but to have deep reverence and awe for the image of God. Well, I think you mentioned in the book that he said, once you hear the testimony of a witness, you too become a witness, That's right. correct? That's right. And the book is Witness Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom, a fascinating book. I learned a lot about him, Professor Wiesel, Professor who Wiesel. was your mentor. That's right. I just want to mention I'm continuing his work now with something called the Witness Institute, which is taking his legacy and his tools and methods for training and awakening people in moral education and applying that to leadership development. So that's the new project that I hope will continue his legacy. Okay. Ariel Berger, thank you so much. Thank you Rabbi, very much. Pleased to see you. Thank you. Thanks. Impeachment, abortion, health care, immigration, and jobs. Those issues are on the minds of voters as they caucus in Iowa February 4th. So what about black Americans? 30 million will be eligible to vote this year. How big of a role will they play in the upcoming Democratic primaries and in the general election next November? With black unemployment at its lowest level ever, 5.5%. Are jobs even on the minds of black voters? Well, joining us with some insights is Evangelist Elvita King. Mrs. King is an author and director of civil rights for the Unborn Priests for Life. She's also the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the daughter of civil rights activist A.D. King. Mrs. King, it's a pleasure to see you again. I've got to ask you first, what do you make of this impeachment trial on Capitol Hill? And uh, do black Americans, when they go to the polls, will they even think about this? Thank you, and let me say hello to your viewers, your listeners, and thanks for this opportunity again. I will say certainly that African-American voters are black voters, and, and remember now, we are one race, one human race. Even the president says we all bleed the same. So skin color doesn't make us a different race, but we are a different ethnic community. But people in the African-American community are waking up. I hear people all the time, listen, don't tell anybody, but... Uh, I, I got a little raise. I have a job. I can get a house now. And all of these types of things are happening. I see that uh, African-American families are now birthing more of the babies rather than aborting the babies. I'm glad to see that. So it's very interesting with impeachment. If you cannot say anything about President Trump's record, which is very good, you try to hide it, try to get the news not to report it, then impeach him. Make up something, get rid of him, because there's nothing else you can do. And I really am blessed by the fact that the President of the United States, Donald John Trump, 
is able to stay focused. And sometimes I think he gets a little angry. It's hard to hear and see all that, but he's focused and he's keeping his promises. You know, a Washington Post poll taken earlier this month found that 40% of black Democrats prefer Joe Biden as a party's nominee for president. What do you think of that? Do you agree? Why? Indoctrination. If you stay within a community for several decades and several generations, doing handouts, government handouts and welfare. So you have a Joe Biden that promises to give you something else free for the next decade, okay? And so people are accustomed to getting things free, but the answer to that is to speak truth, to show how the community is being better. And I, you know, some of the polls, because did not the polls say that Hillary Clinton was winning until the next morning after the election? So I don't always pay so much attention to the polls. I really don't. And what about abortion, the life issue? How important is that to African-Americans? Is it enough to get African-American Christians out to the polls, that issue? Let me say that I just came away from the March for Life week and President Trump being the first American president, sitting president, to go physically to a March for Life and give very encouraging remarks. And the next day, I went to a gathering of young people. Students for Life had a pro-life summit. And as I went in the door, there were so many Caucasian pro-life students. I saw some African-Americans, Latino, Asian, and others, but so many uh, Caucasian Americans. And I said, God, where are the Black young people? And I just heard in my heart, dead. So I know that America is waking up. Truth sets us free. That's Jesus' name. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So truth and life belong to Jesus. And that's why I say, forget about politics, folks. Forget about which party you're in, what party you're loyal to. Vote for life. And a third-way Joint Center poll found that only 22% of black Americans say their personal financial situation has improved during the past two years. Now, you're talking about truth, so I don't know if that's the truth or not, but that's one poll. Are blacks 22%. leading the Democratic Party, or is it just wishful thinking <laughs> on the part of black and white Even conservatives? If 22% say it's better, then there are more who are just not being contacted. So I would say that an increase is a great thing. We know that unemployment in the African-American community is down tremendously. I think several people, Martin Luther King Jr., my uncle even, said that uh, we may have come in on uh, different boats, but we're in the same boat now. And we realize that. And my dad, Reverend A.D. King, if he were here, he would encourage us to just keep praying and keep moving forward. Well, we'll see if uh, African-Americans go and vote in this upcoming primary season. Uh, we appreciate you, uh, Mrs. King, for being and with us today. Book, please let me mention The Spirit of a Dream. And it's been sold everywhere books are sold. The Spirit of a Dream. And find me at civilrightsfortheunborn.org. Okay, thank you and God bless you. Thank you. President Trump has signed his promised reworking of the NAFTA trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. It's called the USMCA United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. And what will that agreement and the recently signed historic phase one trade deal with China mean for Americans and the U.S. economy this year? Well, Dan Celia, national radio and TV host of Financial Issues, is here to weigh in. Dan, it's so good to see you again, first time in 2020. I'm assuming you're very positive about USMCA. So what's it going to mean for Americans? I am very positive, and thank you for having me, Gary, and it's great to be with you again. Yeah, I think it's going to be very good for 
2020 is going to be good for the economy. There's a lot of enthusiasm. Some of that enthusiasm has uh, has some concern now with all the virus scares and the issues that China is having in their economy. All in all, I'm going to say it's a great start to uh, getting a final deal with China. How about the recently signed phase one deal with China then? Who benefits the most from that, China or the U.S.? It's very good for China. I would say initially it was better for enthusiasm, animal spirits of investing in China and so on than it was for the U.S. So I think it's been better for them. Overall, I think it's a pretty good deal for the U.S. in that for the first time in many, many years, we are seeing fairness come into trade between the developed nation of China and the developed nation of the U.S. And uh, it's been 20 years that we have had unfair trade deals. So I think that gives the, a sense of confidence uh, to the American economy and traders on Wall Street about what President Trump has done and is continuing to do. What are the prospects for a phase two deal with China? That may be a lot harder to finalize, right? Yeah, it's going to be harder to finalize. But here's the interesting part about it, which nobody anticipated. Uh, one of the things that happened was that uh, President Trump did not remove any of the tariffs uh, on this phase one deal. China was hoping and fully expecting that to happen. It didn't happen. Uh, they knew that, obviously, before they signed the deal. But it caught, I think, uh, the markets here uh, by surprise, being that now what happens is we have a way of holding China accountable for not living up to phase one. And China is far more incentivized to get phase two done in hopes that some of those tariffs will remove. Finally, the Congressional Budget Office just announced, Dan, that the U.S. budget deficit will likely breach $1 trillion this year. Now, I know you're probably worried about that. How will that affect the economy? I've been very, very concerned about the national debt. Unfortunately, I'm a lot more concerned than, than even the administration is in some in it. So I think that um, this, this goes to show my point that I was making in that, look, we, Gary, we're beyond the point of growing our way out of deficits. We, we've passed that about four years ago. So we cannot get out from under deficits without growth, no doubt about it. But we also cannot get out from under deficits at this point without cuts in spending and the shrinking of the size of government. So we have an opportunity here to have a perfect storm of having both GDP growth, growth in our economy, and if we take the step to start cutting government, cutting spending, then we can get out from under this. But there doesn't seem to look as though there's a lot of will right now for us to cut and make the cuts that are necessary. So we're not going to get out of these deficits by growth alone. It is not going to happen. We have reached a point beyond that. Okay, a task for a possible reelected President Trump then, Dan. I'm sure you'll be continuing yes. to sound the alarm on that. Dan Celia, national radio and TV host of Financial Issues, thanks so much for sharing your insights.
You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Gary. I appreciate it. Polls show that arguments made during the impeachment trial of President Trump have done little to change the public's views. Most Americans either supported or opposed the proceedings when the trial started. Many remain steadfast in their positions. University students are no exception. Eduardo Naret is here with us now to fill us in on the impeachment views of younger Americans. He's with Campus Reform. He's their new digital reporter. Eduardo, good to see you. So what have you learned from students regarding impeachment? Do most favor or oppose or do they even care about it? Well, the views were interesting. So I went to American University because I wanted to see if this very liberal campus with a lot of liberal students was listening to the impeachment trial, whether the Democratic message that they've been pushing throughout this entire trial had trickled down to students. And what I found was surprising because it hasn't. So a lot of the students told me that they weren't even following the trial. They haven't been paying attention. They told me they've been too busy with school. Some said they had a lot of work to do um, and they couldn't really focus on the trials. Well, do, do they even understand the Constitution and high crimes and misdemeanors, that sort of thing? <laughs> No, no. And, and I think I think something the main reason why they haven't been following impeachment, that the trend that I heard the most was that, again, they're too busy for it. And so most Americans have made up their mind on President Trump. They've made up their mind on impeachment. And so this long dragged out trial isn't going to change their mind. Look, the, the ratings are down. Nobody's watching it. And, and what surprised me, it's important to point out, too, is that even some of these students who were anti-Trump, some of these students who told me they voted for Hillary Clinton, they were Democrats. A lot of them told me, look, this impeachment is a show. Uh, one student even told me, I think, you know, the American people should have the opportunity to decide on President Trump in November. So it's pretty clear that the, the Democratic tactics on impeachment are not working. And some of their even younger voters are just turned off, turned off by the whole mess. And they, they think it's a charade. charade. Elizabeth Warren was surprised recently by a father who challenged her student loan debt plan. And why was he so upset? Don't most students, including the man's daughter, favor Warren's plan? Who wouldn't want to be free from years of debt? Well, he's upset, but I think he represents a lot of us out there who are upset, myself included, because Elizabeth Warren's plan rewards those who are financially irresponsible, students who chose to take out thousands and thousands of dollars in debt knowing they couldn't pay it back, and it punishes those who did the right thing, people like myself. Look. I chose to go to an in-state school um, because it was what I could afford at the time and because it, it was the best option for me and I'm better off for it. But you know, if I knew that someone was just gonna make my debt disappear, I, I could have lived the high life. I could have lived with outside my means and I didn't choose to. And so this father was asking Elizabeth Warren, you know, what about people like us? And she looked him plain in the eye and said, you know, you're not getting your money back. Yeah, I don't think there's a magic wand. Too much Harry Potter here, just poof, and uh, your debt's gone. It'd <laughs> yeah. be nice, wouldn't it? I know you've also been looking into an alarming development concerning privacy rights at the University of Missouri. So tell us what is happening at Mizzou. So the school is unveiling this new app for new students that will track their location for attendance purposes. Now, the school is saying that students can opt out and that it's only tracking their attendance in the classroom, but this is pretty alarming to us at the Leadership Institute's Campus Reform because Missouri isn't the only school that we've seen this happen. And, and we've reported on how college administrators and professors have trampled down on, on student rights in other areas, such as their free speech rights. So who's to say that they're not eventually going to trample down on their privacy rights as well? I mean, students shouldn't have to choose between pursuing an education and giving up their right to privacy. And this is, is scary. This is the start of a slippery slope when schools can now track students' locations on campus. Now, are the students even concerned about this, or do they even know about it? 
So we've been able to get some student comment from uh, around the country, not necessarily in Missouri, but some of the students have come out and said they're very concerned. Uh, it's a privacy concern. There are even several professors who have gone on the record to other national media outlets around the country saying this is definitely a privacy concern. Uh, the ACLU in Missouri has come out and saying they're watching this. And so at the end of the day, if students really have an issue with this and they want to change the policy, they're going to have to speak up to administrators. It's up to them to tell administrators and their professors, look, you can take attendance the old-fashioned way. We want our right to privacy don't track us on campus. If they stay silent on this, the school's going to continue to do it. Okay, Eduardo Naret, good to have you keeping an eye on all these developments on American college campuses. We thank you. We'll see you again next time. Perfect. Thank you. Have you ever prayed and not received an answer? You only experience God's silence? You're not alone. 80 years ago, many Jewish prisoners prayed repeatedly for deliverance from the gas chambers that awaited them at Auschwitz. Nothing. No response from God, no rescue, only death. I asked Rabbi Ariel Berger about his mentor, Elie Wiesel. Did the Holocaust survivor, Nobel laureate, ever experience God's silence? God seemed to be silent. Why did God allow it to happen? Of course, he said, when I, when I leave this world, uh, and I go up there to the pearly gates, I'm going to ask God one question, and that question is, why? Yes, only God can answer the why of the Holocaust. But what about God's silence? Doesn't he care? A colleague here at CBN told me that when a teacher gives students a test, the teacher remains silent. Likewise, when God tests us, sometimes he remains silent. Like the teacher, his silence doesn't mean he isn't there. And there's a big difference between God's silence and the silence of humans. Often God's silence leads to life lessons and growth. But our silence can lead to death and even genocide. Just ask survivors of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or victims of the Hutus in Rwanda. Elie Wiesel said, once you hear the testimony of a witness, you become a witness. And as witnesses, we must speak up. Whether it's anti-Semitism, the persecution of Christians, Muslim Uyghurs, Rohingya, or others, we must not remain silent. We must take action. Remember what James, the brother of Jesus, told us? Faith without works is dead. So let's all pray for more outspoken witnesses and living faith. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.